Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 345 of the podcast. It is August 12th, 2019. My guest today is Edward Niedermeyer. He's the author of the book titled Ludicrous, the unvarnished story of Tesla Motors. So that's why um, the blog post uh, for this episode talks about, quote unquote, ludicrous stories about Tesla and Toyota. So the book Ludicrous is available now for pre-order at Amazon and, and certainly through other booksellers. It's scheduled to be released August 20th. Ed is currently the senior editor of mobility technology at the website The Drive. He was previously the editor-in-chief for the site The Truth About Cars. And he's also one of the hosts of a podcast called Autonocast, which is about autonomous vehicle technology. So in the episode here today, Ed and I will talk about, um, first off, his thoughts on Toyota as somebody who's covered the auto industry for over a decade. Well, this book has a lot of interesting details and stories about Tesla and Elon Musk. We focus mainly on the failed relationship between Tesla and Toyota. We'll talk about some of the differences in the corporate culture. And even though maybe it's not strictly lean related, we also talk about the dynamics that lead to somebody who criticizes a company being labeled a hater or or worse. Uh, maybe there are applications to what happens to people sometimes internally within an organization when they speak up in the name of making things better. Um, Ed and I uh, are in agreement. We want Tesla to succeed. And in any case, I think constructive criticism or, or talking about risks shouldn't be interpreted as wanting an organization to fail. It's a long episode. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to find a link to more information about the book, um, or if you want uh, links to anything else mentioned here, you can go to leanblog.org slash 345. Well, again, we are joined today by Edward Niedermeyer. Ed, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Yeah, it's really glad to have you here. Happy to talk about um, the book. I've re really been enjoying the preview that, that, that you provided, um, not just the sections related to you know, Tesla and manufacturing strategy and execution and, and lean and Toyota. The, the, the whole story um, is, is quite fascinating. But before we get into that, I'm curious, you know, you've been covering the auto industry for over a decade now. Um, and, and as you were learning about the industry, I'm curious, what were your perceptions about Toyota compared to the competition, business results, their um, quality, their management system, things like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I started off um, covering sort of the the fall of the of the Detroit car companies in, in 2008. Um, and uh you know, that was, it was a really good way, I think, to learn the auto industry because it really just hits you like how hard this business is, how many ways there are to fail. Um, and so, you know, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to Toyota at first, but then sort of over time, um, you know, as I was, I was sort of examining these and, and learning more about these Detroit companies and, and, and the mistakes they'd made and the, and the problems they'd faced and the challenges, um, you know, Toyota kind of kept emerging as sort of this other you know, example, this counterexample. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure if there was one sort of point at which I, I really started to um, pay more attention to them, but but certainly over time, they, they stood out more and more. And so um, I did start to make some effort to, um, to actually study uh, a little bit more um, 
you know, their history and, um, and their sort of cultural innovations. And, and when I did learn more about, about Toyota and, and it's, um, you know, specifically the, the cultural stuff, um, it really just hit me as like, oh, right, this is, this explains, this counterexample explains why um, there have been so many problems on the other side. Like what Toyota really showed me is that when you have a, an organization as large as a modern automaker, um, culture is really the only thing that can, that can hold it all together. Their individual you know, strategies or, or techniques or whatever that, that are really important to parts of the business, but just sort of on a, on a really high level, culture is the glue that either, you know, holds everything together or makes everything fall apart. And um, as you probably can tell from the book, uh, this is something that has very much influenced my, my view on Tesla. Yeah. And, you know, my, my impression is that even though, and, and we'll talk about this more later, I'm sure Tesla purchased uh, the factory from Toyota it was the, the Numi um, joint venture plant. But, uh, you know, as I've blogged about before, it seems like that Toyota culture left the building when, when Tesla took over and, um, you know, back in 2008, you know, with the financial crisis, I mean, I think the, the clearest compare and contrast between um, GM and, and Toyota, I mean, you know, GM was going through bankruptcy, but even post-bankruptcy, when there are short-term production slowdowns, GM thinks nothing of putting people on short-term layoff, where Toyota yep. very intentionally uh, chooses to not lay off people. They do training. They'll, they'll send people to work for Habitat for Humanity. Um, they're, they're investing in their, their people and uh, their loyalty. And I, I think that's a big part of the culture. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and um, Toyota in particular, you know, that, that contrast was a really, was a really important one then, but I think, you know, now too, with, with Tesla, the, the cultures could not be more different. And it's, it's funny to think that like, not only did Tesla buy a, f- a factory from Toyota, um, but Toyota was a major investor in Tesla mm-hmm. and, for me, you know, people often ask, and I think this was on Twitter, one of the, the questions that you got asked. And so I'll go ahead and just answer it now. Sort of what is, what could have been one of the major turning points or pivot points in Tesla's history? I think for me, the most important pivot point was uh, the Toyota relationship. Um, if they could have made that work, um, the, the, the positive things that, that Tesla brings to the auto industry um, you know, it could have brought those and, and Toyota could have brought, it, they're just like perfectly complementing each other. You know, they both sort of mm-hmm. co- cover different aspects of the, of the business. Um, and if they could have made that relationship work, that, I mean, Tesla could be just an absolute, an absolute powerhouse today. Um, and it's amazing to, to, you know, and, and, and to be fair, I mean, I, it's possible that the relationship never could have worked. Um, they, they probably, by the time they got together, they were too different and it was just probably, doomed to some extent from the start but if that had been possible um you know that would have been a world beater automaker right there yeah i mean my impression um you know it always been tesla clearly has a very innovative product and and arguably only the type of product that a startup could create because of you know inertia and other factors in the legacy automakers and you know i always wondered well you know they have an innovative product the way you go about assembling a car is pretty much known science at this point. Um, it, it seems like assembling, um, you know, a, a sled full of batteries to, to a chassis is, is not radically different than putting in, inserting an engine and a transmission. And it seems like from what I've read and what I've been told about Tesla that 
the, the company for better or for worse is hell bent on inventing their own way. You know, Elon Musk has, has publicly made comments about how he was going to, uh, you know, invent a better way of manufacturing better than Toyota. Is, is that just kind of where, where do you think some of that comes from? I'm curious some of your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think at a high level, um, I think what makes Toyota, uh, Tesla, excuse me, so interesting is that it is sort of the first time that we've seen a hard, a high tech uh, startup, Silicon Valley startup style culture brought to the auto industry. Yeah. And I think, you know, because people look at cars mostly as consumers first, um, it's very easy to see some of the positive things that that's brought, you know, the big screen and the over there updates and the the games and apps and just there's a lot of things that as consumers it's really easy to see like this car has you know technological features that other cars don't and that you know we live in a kind of a technology worshiping society and that's really Mm -hmm. cool um and i think you know what what's interesting uh, about this is that you know what what works and what what works best in a in a high-tech startup particularly in the software space um, is basically almost the exact opposite of what works best in a, in a major automaker. Um, and if you think about it, right, just on a basic level, startups tend to be these small groups of, of very talented people who are sort of let, you know, to, uh, allowed to sort of run free and, and come up with creative sort of innovative solutions to tough problems and things like that. You know, that stuff happens at automakers as well. But really what defines success in an automaker is a, a culture that's oriented around the reality of their size and complexity. And as I was saying before, right, like culture is the only thing that works and, and more specifically industrial, you know, uh, culture, which really in its modern form come out of, um, out of the Toyota production system and the Toyota way um, is just extremely different, right? It's, it's sort of major breakthroughs, uh, you know, Red Bull, Red Bull fueled hackathons leading to major breakthroughs on one side and Kaizen on the other, right? And these are like literally you know, as different of approaches to working as you can almost get. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of people think that I'm just out to get to- uh, Tesla, right? I'm, I, I don't like them or I'm getting paid by some nefarious interest to go after that. The reality is, is that what makes this story so important is that we need more high-tech um, influence in, in the auto industry and in mo- mobility. Um, the technology space has a lot to offer um, and, and there are a lot of improvements we can make on, on the way we get around today. But um, what Tesla is, is really showing um, is that, you know, bringing those ideas, making an invention into an innovation requires something more than just that creativity. It requires sure. the structure, the discipline, the focus, the, the um, you know, everything from regulatory compliance, but also manufacturing is a really, really important part of this. And, mm-hmm. and, and not just manufacturing, but the process of taking an idea into something that can be manufactured efficiently and at high quality. Um, all of that is, that's what car companies do. And it's something that as a society broadly, I think we've really lost an, our, our appreciation for, um, in part because we do worship like high tech so much. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, this, this Tesla story, it's so important because it shows that there is a space in the future for industrial manufacturing and, and for all those other things that, that uh, car companies do to bring, you know, an idea into, into a, a product that though very dangerous, right? Cars are dangerous. They can, they're still safe enough that they can be, they can be sold. They can be defended in court. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that are, that are very much taken for granted. And, and what Tesla does is it shows sort of where the line is between what the high-tech startups do well 
mm-hmm. and what the industrial manufacturing companies do well. And I think that's why I'm not sure this really answers your question, but but I think it's a really important part of the book um, and and a part of this story is to understand that that's why this story matters. It's not because Tesla is good or Tesla is bad. It's because their experience, their test case that shows us sort of how the future is going to shake out. And so it's really important to see yeah. with clear eyes what they've done well, but also what they've really not done well. And when it comes to manufacturing, they've really, really, really not done well. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, I view the company, you know, as, as I think there's lost potential there where this idea of Tesla technology, Tesla innovation combined with Toyota mass, you know, they wouldn't, you know, mass production, but building at scale. You know, yeah. lean manufacturing is, is different than the quote-unquote old mass production, I should really call it, producing at scale. That should have been or could have been a marriage made in heaven because I'll just put out there, you know, for the record, uh, even though I worked for two years uh, at General Motors 20 years ago, I, I think Tesla is an incredibly important company. I want Tesla to succeed. And my, you know, my, some of my own personal frustration with Tesla comes at seeing what I think are uh, preventable avoidable struggles. And Elon Musk talks about production hell. I'm like, well, it doesn't have to be that bad. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so anyone who wants to label me a hater, I think, I think they, they misunderstand me. I, I am not, I, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the legacy auto industry in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, I think the one difference, you know, I, th- I think that illustrates difference in culture. I saw the other day, there's this uh, pet mode feature in the, yep. And so the idea is that you, 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 you can leave a dog in the vehicle, the air conditioning will run, and there's a display on the center stack that says, it's okay, Fido is in here, the, the vehicle is being uh, cooled, which, I think, well, wait a minute, who's really going to take time to look at that screen when their first assumption we've been conditioned to say, it's horrible, if not illegal, to leave a dog in a car, don't do that. And so there's, there's that dimension. But the, the thing I saw most recently is a customer discovered uh, a flaw in the way that was designed. He said that dog mode only works if you've left the climate control in automatic and he had it in manual and he came back to the car. It was like 85 degrees. So he tweeted at Elon Musk. And here's the thing I love. Elon wrote back and just said, working on it. And I believe that. And they are hyper responsive. But as an engineer, I look and say, my God, that's really bad engineering. If they had allowed that flaw and there's this difference between i think engineering discipline and being proactive versus the break things fast mindset of silicon valley yeah that's exactly right and and you know we've seen mobility become this huge trend in silicon valley and i think part of it is is tied to the the hubris right which is is really a part of all of this i think you know um if tesla really wanted to just be a small volume you know super premium manufacturer a a Bugatti or a Lamborghini for Silicon Valley. Um, they, had, you know, I've always thought they had a, a niche there waiting, and and in, they, I mean, not waiting. They they created it and they could own it, and and they do own it. Although there's more competition now, um, but but that the 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 issue is that there's always been this hubris that that that's not enough. It's not enough to make, you know, premium, you know, uh, uh, small volume cars. Uh, they have to go into the mass market. And this is why, you know, I started criticizing, you know, writing critically about Tesla, um, you know, back in, in, it was a little bit in 2014, mostly really in 2015. Um, and, and at the time, 
the manufacturing stuff was it was very evident that there were problems with it. The Model S had been out for a few years, and and even though it was a really well received car, we could see these issues already. Um, and it gets to what you were saying about the dog mode, which is that you know part of the Silicon Valley culture is speed. You know, there's this the speed is like this intrinsically good value, and in the auto industry we don't have it at all. And so the tech people tend to look at the car people and say, oh, you're just slow dinosaurs, you know, a hundred years old and you're just what, like old and tired or something. And like, they don't realize, no, no, like the reason it takes so long to develop a car and bring it to market is that it's incredibly complex physical object, which makes it fundamentally different than software. And you can't just like pushing, you know, Tesla has shown that you can update some of the software stuff, but there's been all kinds of problems with Tesla's cars that you can't just do an over there update for. Um, and so making cars is a, is a measure twice cut once business. And it's a, you know, it's a test for five years, you know, because there, you know, and I think one of the things, again, this is sort of the hubris part is, is, you know, people think, well, I'm really, really smart. Right. And, and I have all these really, really smart people working at this company. Like if we just think it through, we'll find all the problems and then we'll fix them and it'll be fine. And what a hundred years of auto industry history has taught is that it doesn't matter how smart you are. There is no one who's smart enough to understand all of the different ways that a car can fail and, and, and can, can break and can have problems. Right. And, and so like one of my favorite examples of this with the model S was like, you know, the, the fitment on the glass roof, you know, was really hard to do. Right. It's known that's a difficult thing to do in manufacturing. Um, and then there were these little channels under, you know, along the edges of that of that glass panoramic roof that would like collect bits of water. And then around uh, part of it, there was like this this they were using some um, felt that was like you know natural wool felt. And what ended up happening because of this sort of you know uh, like three or four different decisions, none of which on their own were like you know a terrible decision per se, but the way they sort of stack up together. Um, it started creating, especially in Norway, but other places as well, um, the water would soak into this wool felt. It wouldn't be able to, to dry fast enough, and it would rot. It would, it would, there would be these molds, which would, and there's some amazing photos of mold just taking over the entire inside of the, of the, the headliner of people's cars. And it's like, this, this, that to me, is that's the auto industry, right? It's like, they're all, you can, you can make a decision about each one of those little decisions, but like, no one in their right mind is going to understand how all of those things are going to fail in that, that kind of cascading failure. And that's why you just have to test, 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 test. Yeah. There's, there's a reason why, I mean, when my dad spent his whole career at General Motors and there's a reason why they go test vehicles in Death Valley. They go test vehicles in the top of a mountain in Colorado. They are looking at the extreme edge use cases uh, for vehicles where you know, not everyone's got the, you know, the temperature uh, and the weather of Silicon Valley. But you, know, yep. you, you talk about speed and it's funny, you know, Toyota, at least for a period before the other automakers caught up, there was a time when Toyota was going from basically idea to market in two years in the development yep. of a new model. The rest of the auto industry was taking four to five years. So it's, it's ironic at you know, people would view Toyota as saying, well, if you've got process, that that's there, that's therefore going to be slow. And, and if anything, it's because of process and discipline that Toyota was a lot faster on the product development front over time. So that's just another, of the, another lost opportunity. Uh, yeah, no. And, and actually one of the, you know, people, people have lots of very interesting ideas about why Toyota wanted to be in, have a partnership with, with Tesla and want to invest in them. People say, you know, 
Akio Toyota just drove the car and thought it was really great and loved it. And, and that was it. And there's, and, and like, that was part of it. There's lots of different sort of things that go into a decision that, you know, a strategic investment like that. But one of the main ones was, you know, Akio Toyota had taken over Toyota and he was really worried about what he called big company disease, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is you look at General Motors, right? And that's like the, <laughs> the, the prime, you know, example of a big company disease. And he felt like some of those things were happening at Toyota. And um, he felt that, that Tesla embodied a, what he called enterprise culture, which maybe we could compare to sort of Silicon Valley startup startup culture and he just wanted to he wanted toyota people to be exposed to that and that was what a lot of what that investment according to my sources was about um what's really interesting is is around so first of all the culture clash was immediate and again i I really could not go into a lot of details about this in the book unfortunately but um you know my my sources at toyota do say it, it wasn't just that tesla was arrogant there was some arrogance on toyota's side as well toyota's you know engineers <laughs> you know engineers uh the best engineers in particular tend to have some some arrogance and they tend to have a hard time uh working mm-hmm. with new systems and so there was a culture clash on both sides there um uh, but one of the really interesting things was you know at the time um and this was sort of roughly around the sudden unintended acceleration scandal period, they were looking at speeding up their, their uh, development cycle for vehicles. Uh, they were examining that possibility internally. And around the time that they sort of realized, okay, this Tesla relationship isn't going anywhere, they also independently, uh, it wasn't just, you know, well, this Tesla experience went badly. And so, but they, they decided they actually wanted to extend their development time. Uh, not, not bring it shorter, but actually make it a little bit longer. And I think it, was, it, it wasn't by much, but uh, maybe by, you know, I think four to five years or something or three to four years. I, I don't remember the details right now but but you know I, I think it's interesting that they went in sort of hoping to to learn from this move fast break things sort of mentality and they, they if nothing else did not find anything there that made them be like oh yeah like that's the that's the direction we should go so I, you know I was going to ask and I think you've alluded to it why did that relationship between Tesla and Toyota fall apart is, is it probably just described as culture clash yeah so it was like from day one, like, like, and again, there's some, you know, the, the challenge with reporting on Tesla is that, you know, uh, anecdotes are very hard to corroborate sometimes, especially when they happen at sort of higher levels. And, um, and uh, when you're dealing with a, you know, a known sort of litigious player, you have to be very careful. And, and so um, unfortunately there's some wonderful anecdotes that, that for legal reasons did not make the cut, but, but suffice it to say that, literally like the announcement event like had major culture clash like from the very 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 beginning um so you know and, and again i think it was very much sort of akio toyota's idea it wasn't something that necessarily had come sort of organically from inside toyota um and the 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 culture clash was extremely strong um i think what's what's unfortunate you know i think toyota did maybe not its engineer so much. So there's definitely conflict on the engineering side. I think outside of that, Toyota definitely wanted to learn from Tesla. And the tragic part of this is that it really, I haven't seen any evidence or, or that, that Tesla understood the opportunity that they had to learn from Toyota. I mean, I think there were individually, there were some cases where people, you know, got it, but like organizationally and culturally, there was no like, we need to to jump on this attitude and and one of for me one of the frustrating things about having you know criticized their or been critical of their manufacturing 
um, culture, you know, back as, as early as, as, you know, early 2015, late 2014, um, was that, was that, you know, at the time I said, look, this is not about right now, right? You can make Model S in 20, 30, 40,000 units a year. And like, you know, you don't have to be the leanest operation out there. You'll get away with it. But what you've been saying is that you want to be a mass market player. You want to be making half a million cars a year, a million cars a year. If that's true, you need to get on top of this stuff now because culture is not something that you can just turn around right away. You have to start as soon as humanly possible. And, and even if you've gone at that point, 2012, you know, Tesla been around for, you know, almost 10 years or over, well, yeah, about 10 years. And um, already that's your, you face a challenge at that point in, in sort of shifting the culture and they needed to do that. And it was like, and, and I think that this gets to another really problematic part of Tesla's culture, which is that when people are critical and this is both outside the company, people like me or, or other reporters or, or analysts who, who make sort of critical statements about the company. Um, but also even internally, uh, it is not a place where uh, internal criticism is, is welcomed. I think mm-hmm. generally speaking, again, these are all generalized. They're, they're exceptions to everything, but um, responding to that, right. To that, like we need to improve culture. And this goes back to, to even Frank in the book um, in, in 2008, he came into, or no, sorry, 2000, yeah, right, right when the Roadster was first being produced, he came in and said, listen, like, we have to institute some lean practices here. And it was like, forget it. Like, the culture was yeah. already so entrenched as being not a traditional automaker, we're going to be doing our own thing, that it was like, you know, get out of here. We, we, we don't yeah. want you. And so that rejecting these suggestions you know, it, the tragic part is that they, you know, in those early days, they were able to get away with it because they're making small volumes of premium cars, and and yeah. and that was that was okay. But they needed to start that then in order to avoid what's been basically an absolutely disastrous uh, uh, launch and manufacturing of the Model Three, um, which yeah. now the company is really at at stake. Yeah. So I want to. I'm, I'm curious because one thing you talk about in the book. Um, Tesla at some point deviated from its initial strategy of being a fabulous automaker, as they called it. You know, back during the financial crisis there, and and there's probably still excess capacity uh, in the auto industry, uh, suppliers and subcontractors um, essentially have the ability to build the cars. You know, Tesla could have, um, you know, designed the cars and basically had manufacturing outsourced. But then they moved away from that. Maybe it was this opportunity. It was too good to pass up to buy the Numi plant. But what are your thoughts on, on why they moved away from that strategy to, to say, we're going to build, um, they, they've actually insourced more than the yeah. typical automaker would. Yeah. So um, that really, I think, started with the the Roadster. Um, and, and so the Roadster, right, so the, so the original pitch deck was, yeah, we, we're going to be this fabulous company. And this actually goes back, I think, to even earlier in the 90s. Um, uh, there was this really this trend of, um, of uh, suppliers, these tier one, tier two suppliers doing more and more of the R&D work for, for automakers. And, and basically the automakers sort of increasingly becoming, you know, final assembly and sort of marketing, right? Um, and, and, you know, I think that trend has hit a bit of a high water. I think now, especially with new future technologies, um, being developed, I think automakers understand that they need to, to, to have more of a be masters of their fate technologically. Um, but at the time, yeah, it, it seemed like, oh, you can not only um, you can buy all these parts off the shelf and then you can have someone else put them, put them all together for you. And 
um, as I described in the book, and, and others have, have sort of described this process as well, um, you know, the roadster did not turn out the way they thought it would. They, they thought it would be basically a simple conversion. And then, you know, uh, Elon Musk was certainly pushing to have sort of a lot more changed about the car. So it'd be more unique and distinctive. The, the, this, um, this was a, a Lotus body that they were buying, right? Yeah. So they, they thought they, so, so they had, there was the Lotus was sort of identified as the, as the car body. Yeah. Um, and the, the AC propulsion had developed, you know, for this thing called the T zero, which was like a little sort of basically a race, you know, kit car. Um, but it had this amazing electric drivetrain. Um, and they thought, oh, we'll just take this drivetrain, we'll license their technology um, and put it together with this Lotus. And, and you know, this will be simple. It'll be just dropping. A, it'll be like, a, you know, dropping in a different motor in a, in a car. Yeah, well, that's not what happened at all. Um, and, uh, you know, so in the AC propulsion case is a really interesting one because they didn't realize at the time, this is how... Um, clueless frankly they were about manufacturing they didn't realize that these these drivetrains were basically hand they, they not basically they were handmade by the people who invented them right and there was like no documentation there was and they were just extremely finicky and like the kinds of things that they were like a work of art almost right where where it can only really be made by one person and and the difference between that and something that's manufacturable is like there's like an ocean you know dividing those two those two realities. And so they had to make it sort of manufacturable. And in the process, they basically completely, not completely, but they, they dramatically reinvented that, that drivetrain uh, and made it better. And so, and so that sort of held up as like, you know, part of Tesla's innovation and it is, but it also, the other way of looking at this that gets left out in the other books that are out there and the other perspectives on this is that, you know, if you're about to go into the car manufacturing business, you got to make sure that what you're what you're doing it can be manufactured, and they hadn't done that. And then on the car side as well, um, you know, there was this elegance creep, but then there was also this just lack of understanding of like, you know, re-engineering a door for a car can be more expensive than you know, you know, d- developing a new drivetrain. You know, um, it, they there's just People take things about cars for granted. And so, so what turned into or what, what evolved from a, a sort of idea of just buy a couple off-the-shelf parts and sort of put them together very simply and put it out there turned into a lot of invention and creation and building their own thing. And they really got forced. They were sort of an accidental automaker, right? They kind of got forced, not that forced, but like they, they kind of ended up in this place of being a real OEM without really setting out to do it. And I think that's, you know, sort of where the, the, the ambivalence about manufacturing has, has always been is that they, on, on some deep level, they never really wanted to be a car company with its own factory. But at the same time, they, through these sort of twists of, of fate and lack of planning, frankly, um, they ended up having to do more and more. And, and then, you know, then they, you know, was like, okay, we're going to, man, you know, manufacture our own battery packs. And they sort of started doing this stuff just to get the cars out the door. And in the process, it became their culture. And it kind of shows that, Culture isn't necessarily, you know, the principles that you write down at the beginning and say, this is what we're going to do. It's, it's what you end up actually doing, right? And how you end up actually solving problems. And now sort of these things are all just part of Tesla's culture and, and getting from something where you're like very control freaky and like using cutting edge technology to uh, manufacture these cars that are unlike anything else that's out there. Now sort of trying to build mass market, you know, affordable cars it's just a totally different, you know, it's a different project. And, yeah. and they've got this culture that was sort of forged in this, this experimentation with the Roadster. 
Um, and it's just not a great fit for, for what they're trying to do now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting um, when you, when you look at the culture and, and some of the differences there, how much of that is, there's this fate where you think, okay, alternative history. If we had no financial crisis, if General Motors had not gone bankrupt, GM might not have pulled out of the new me joint venture with Toyota. They uh, Tesla might not have had the opportunity to buy that factory for, for literally pennies on the dollar. They might, they might've pursued the fabulous manufacturing, fabulous automaker route. It, it, it's possible, you know, I think one of, and, and one of Tesla's big, big challenges as well is just working with suppliers. If you look at their supplier relationships, they've all fallen apart. And actually at the moment, we're, I think we're looking at the sort of slow motion collapse of their most important supplier relationship, which was with Panasonic, um, which is their battery supplier. Yeah. Um, and that's the one relationship that's endured. Um, but if you look at, you know, uh, Mobileye, which helped them make autopilot a reality, Go down the list, right? And and if you talk to suppliers as well, um, working with Tesla is a very unique challenge. What's really interesting is that, um, and, and I think it's because you know they've they've wanted to do things themselves, but also it's very difficult to go to a supplier when you're a low volume automaker and get them to take you seriously. Yeah. And I think that other high tech startup companies, um, we've recently heard things from um, like uh, I had the. A CTO of, of Zooks, which is like a self-driving car company that they're building this you know robocab from the ground up, and um, they've clearly realized that suppliers like you have to be able to work with suppliers, even if that means sort of giving up some of what you want to control. Or it's like you literally cannot do this stuff by itself. You cannot create a totally new car and a self-driving system and all of these things without leaning on the people who really understand you know, uh, manufacturing and cars and car parts and how they go together and how they work together and how they don't. Um, and I think one of the important lessons that Tesla teaches is that, you know, if you want to be in the, in the, in the, in the manufacturing business, you have to be able to work with suppliers. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. That, that's yep. a big part of Toyota's success. Um, yes. yeah, it just pulled up here. There's an annual ranking of asking the, the suppliers, which automakers, are best to work with. And Toyota every year for the last seven years has been number one. Honda's number two. Nissan is at the bottom of the list with uh, Fiat Chrysler. So I guess it shows not all Japanese automakers are the same, but um, you know, Toyota, that's a big part of their culture and their broader management system. It's not just their own production, but it's the supply chain. Yeah, it's the Kiretsu thing, right? They 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 brought in. They they realized that you know suppliers have to be brought in, um, as part of the development process. You know, really early on, you have to bring them in and make them part of the team that's developing this car. Not they're not just you know a company that you buy parts from, right? That they're much they they have to be integrated in the development process. And then once the production happens, they have to be able to uh, you know do just in time. And that requires a really close relationship. And what, you know, this is something I learned early on about the difference between Toyota and other companies is, you know, GM and Chrysler were infamous for just bleeding their suppliers dry. And and actually now Tesla, there hasn't been a lot reported on this, but there's a lot of stories they're waiting to be told. Uh, it's a difficult one, but but they also, they keep going back to suppliers and say, we need more, we need more, we need more cuts, we need lower yes. cost retroactive price cuts, I've you know, that has been reported. That. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And, 
<laughs> yeah, and and it's it's just it's um those sorts of things. You know, they they work in the short term. If you need to make your quarterly numbers, okay, you know, go soak your supplier. The problem is, is that over the long run, um, it it breaks down the relationship, and the relationship is what makes not only the quality good; they make you a a priority. And, um, and but then also allows the just in time to work. And and if you look at Tesla, one of their biggest problems on the service side is lack of parts availability. Right? That's a that's a, a an inventory management sort of just in time problem. And you need to have really good relationships with your suppliers in order to solve problems like that. And um, they they certainly don't have great relationships yeah. with their suppliers at this point. Yeah. There there's there's another key element there where the parts shortages and and being good to work with means having a stable level of production schedule. So there there was yes. a point back in 2004 I was working for a software company we were doing some implementation work with um, an auto supplier in Michigan that sent headliners to um, I think uh, Honda they sent them down to Ohio and uh, Ford and, and Chrysler. Um, but, you know, the, the, they said Honda, when they sent a schedule, they knew that schedule was going to be consistent in terms of the mix of how many of which type of headliner to send. The big three automakers were constantly jerking them around. Like the schedule meant nothing. They would change their order at the last minute. And that was incredibly disruptive. And, and it probably it ended up increasing Costs, which would prevent John, you know, that supplier um, from from being able to really offer better efficiency and lower cost over time. So the uh, you know I imagine Tesla with their kind of Silicon Valley hockey stick of production curves. I'm always reading about their big end of quarter push, uh, which reminds me of what Dell Computer was like in you know in the 2000 time frame when I worked there. That end of quarter spike, that mad scramble to hit this quarter's numbers that just creates a lot of problems too. And, you know, you could say they're being innovative uh, because no one else in the auto industry does it that way or they're crazy because nobody yeah. else does it that way. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's in some ways that, that the crazy part is that, is that they are, it's like they find new ways to, um, to, to do old problems. You know what I mean? Like, like that lack of planning and that lack of, um, of consistent scheduling is a problem that a lot of automakers have struggled with for a very long time. And Tesla has just found new ways to, to, to do that old problem, to have that old problem. And, and it is absolutely, it's one of the things actually that I've still never been able to find a good explanation for is why Tesla varies the rate of production so much within a given quarter. And it, you can see it. You, and, and like people who watch the factory can tell it's like it's like dead for the first like you know month or so of the of the of the quarter and then as it goes as the quarter goes on as it it just builds to this crescendo of just like frantic people running around people working you know 14 hour shifts like seven days a week like just absolute madness and it's like everything we know about manufacturing makes it clear and it's not that hard to understand why like steady operating at a steady state is it's it's the best way to operate for your fa- you know your production facility and your system it's the best way for your suppliers right keeps things consistent and predictable for them yeah. um and and just up and down from you know supply chain management to the actual manufacturing itself it just makes sense and so but like here we are years later and Tesla is still doing these frantic you know slow down speed up like variable rates and i i just I, I wish I had a, I could explain why they do it. They certainly won't ever say um, as a company officially, 
And so I can't, I can't even tell you why they think that's the right way to do things. And yeah. the best, the best guess I've heard is cash management. And, um, and I will say also that, that Tesla, one of the other things that Tesla proves is that, is that, um, managing a car company for the benefit of stock investors, momentum stock investors in particular, seems to be a very poor idea. Um, momentum stock investors have the like opposite mentality of, um, sort of long-term right. automaker, what you, what you want as a long-term, you know, an automaker sort of long-term leadership perspective. And so I think that's also been something that has really hurt Tesla is that they became a momentum stock and then they started running the company in a way to sort of make those people happy. And, and that was just a terrible, terrible decision. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the brilliant things they, uh, that Tesla did was taking all of those pre-orders for Model 3, because then that gives, I mean, this is you know, what Boeing does. You, you create this huge backlog, and then you basically have known demand as long as the customers are willing to wait. And then you could level your production, which has a lot of benefit. But it seems like they've burned down a lot of that backlog. And I mean, I've read things where Elon talks about, we're constantly adjusting pricing to help I'm paraphrasing, you know, to help shape demand. And I, I, in companies like this, I know it was the case at Dell, there was this crazy pressure to hit the quarterly number. So then you get within the last few weeks of the quarter, you start offering discounts and deals. And I don't know, I've, I haven't shopped for a Tesla. I don't know if what that's what they do, but I, 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 I would guess, I'm curious if you, if you know this, you have a sense of it, that their wildly production, wildly varying production rates are far more variable than the actual end demand for cars. It must be something that they're injecting um, to, to try to catch up from not being on a good pace to hit what they've promised Wall Street, maybe. Yeah, exactly. And, and you're constantly seeing them change things based on whether and right. And like sometimes it's about volume and then they need to hit the you know volume goals. And sometimes it's about margin, you know, shoring up margin. And you see the just constant and it's, it's deeply ironic because, right, you know, Elon Musk sort of you know, has always pitched uh, the the in-store, you know, the, the, sorry, the company store approach, right? Not having franchise dealers mm-hmm. as being a way to avoid, you know, these sort of slimy guys who play all these games with pricing and you never know what you're getting and blah, blah, blah. And like, it, it Tesla is as bad or, or actually probably worse than a lot. I mean, it's hard to say because different dealers, there's good dealers and there's bad dealers and, and yeah. you can't compare that whole system um, to what Tesla's doing. But, but like, Tesla constantly changes, you know, how much autopilot costs, how much full self-driving costs, you know, uh, uh, discounts that, you know, uh, they, they'll have, you know, a car on the showroom floor and then, oh, you know, we don't, we don't ever discount, they say, but then all of a sudden that one's, you know, can be sometimes tens of thousands of dollars off on some of these things or, or certain options that were, you know, ludicrous was $10,000 one day and the next day it's, it's free once you get the performance model. Supercharging was included, then it's not, now it is again. And and frankly, like this is not just right. This is tied to the the problems in manufacturing as well. But but now I think what we're starting to see too, which is really going to be I think problematic for the company, is that this is starting to erode customer satisfaction as well or happiness. You know, people. It's one thing to say, you know, okay, well, I'm an early adopter, and so maybe I'm going to pay more and maybe even get a little less because it's you know that's how these sort of high tech products work. Um, now that we're in a mature, a more mature, it's a more, it should in theory be a more mature business. They're in a higher volume, lower price uh, point market. Uh, people are starting to say, wait a second, how come depreciation aside, what I bought, you know, three months ago or four months ago is now literally worth, 
you know, $6,000 less. Like that's not even the depreciation. That's the new MSRP. Um, how, how can that happen? And it's because they need to move more cars. And, and that's what they care more about that than about the people that they've sold cars to. And I think that is, you know, I read the forums a lot and obviously this is all subjective and not quantified, but, but I definitely over the past year or so increasingly seen this sort of, you know, unhappiness with, with the constant changing in prices and options and, and it's just people are getting burnt out on it. They don't, they, you know, no one can keep up with it. And uh, it just doesn't feel like, like Tesla is trying to, to, to make things sort of fair and even handed, especially to the extent that they, they promised they would be able to relative to, to new car dealers. Yeah. So I want to uh, step back and talk a little bit about, um, I always like to ask authors, you know, what, what motivates you to write a book? That's, that's such a big endeavor. Um, you know, there's already other books out there about Tesla. So I guess, you know, it's that question of, you know, why, why write the book? Um, again, the title and the subtitle, it's ludicrous, the unvarnished story of Tesla motors, you know, what, why write it? What makes it unvarnished? And, you know, I, I w- want to talk more about Twitter sphere, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I tweeted that I was going to be interviewing you and there were a number of people who wrote and said, basically, well, he's writing the book because he's out to get Tesla. You kind of yeah. referred to that earlier. So why, why, why wade into this? Why write a book? Well, I mean, the short answer to why I write a book specifically is because I was incredibly naive and I had no idea what it really took to write a book. Um, but I, yeah, so so I had been so and, and actually because of all these people that you're referencing um, who and, and I've been dealing with them for a long time um, where any kind of criticism of Tesla, even when you are really trying to be constructive about something. Um, and, and so right to so the one of the knocks against me is like I've been you know, predicting that Tesla would fail since, you know, well, they say since 2008, because I wrote a couple blog posts way back then, but I really didn't write about Tesla between 2009 and, and late 2014, um, when I started writing more, a little more critically. And then, and then in 2015, um, I, as I described in the book, I, I stumbled onto this battery swap thing, which I'd been really fascinated with. And, and I realized that like Tesla had created this Potemkin technology, basically, that was, then used to sort of prop up their their financial situation and and that was the point at which I really got sucked into the story um and and that was sort of coincidental and um and so I've been writing about them for a long time and people have been saying oh you know from the very beginning if you write anything critical about particularly at the time it was a lot about the manufacturing um you know you're 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 trying to hurt them right you're you're trying to you're shorting their you're short their stock you must be short their stock and and you're trying to make the stock go down and it's like no 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 listen to what I'm saying. I'm saying, if you don't fix these problems now and you don't start building your culture, when Model 3 comes out, it's going to be a disaster because you're not going to have that manufacturing culture in place and you're not going to have done enough testing and all this other stuff. And frankly, like, you know, people, the knock on me is that I've been, I've been predicting that they've been, they would fail since, since 2008. And in reality, what I've been doing is trying to warn them of exactly the problems that have happened. Right. And so, um, and, and to me, Again, as, as I mentioned earlier, I think this is the the real sort of if you there's, there's so much happening with Tesla, which is why it's such a great story, right? And and it's been it's been you know with the exception of of both these you know these fans of the company, they're almost all investors in the company, and and then actually Tesla itself has has written blog posts saying that I'm you know shorting their stock and making up stories and all this stuff, which is absolute lies. Um, 
you know, th- that part aside, it, it's, it's the best story <laughs> that the car industry has to offer. Uh, it's got it all. And especially for me, I'm not really a traditional car guy. I'm, I'm really interested in, in all kinds of things. Um, you know, the environment and trade and, and, and politics and engineering and uh, just, I'm a, I'm a generalist and Tesla has so many culture too, right? Tesla is so, Tesla's success is so tied into where we are culturally right now. Um, whether that's, you know, our obsession with technology and what that, where that comes from and what that, what that means for how we see the world. But even, you know, if you look at the successes of, of someone like President Trump, like there are some real, you know, similarities between how he has succeeded and his strategies for success and, and, and Elon Musk's. And I know that makes people really angry and I kept that out of the book, but like it, it's, it's true. Tesla is very much a product of our times. And so as someone who's, I think my, my core interest is history. Um, and, and so Tesla is just like embodies all these different aspects of our, of our current moment in history. Um, and particularly um, the auto industry and, 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 and where it's going. Um, and, and I'll just, one other thing, you know, you mentioned the dog mode earlier um and and that that you know little bug right where if if it's if the if the the fan mode weren't an automatic uh the dog mode wouldn't work and someone could have potentially like allowed their dog to you know you know die from from heat um that is one little example uh of what happens when you don't test enough right and 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 this is what the auto industry is really good at is is testing and being thorough and thinking through uh there's this whole field called functional safety where it's literally working through all the way that things can go wrong what happens when that thing goes wrong then what happens sort of like the five whys of safety sort of um was a very like simplistic way to think about it um and and i think you know this, these things are really important for, for cars, right? Because, you know, it's not a, a smartphone app. It's not um, software on a computer that's just ones and zeros. There's life and death, you know, 30,000 plus people a year die just in the U.S., a million and a half globally a year uh, die on the roads because of cars. Like, not being responsible in how you engineer those uh, is, is going to contribute to that. But I think even more important is if you're looking at the future, and, and now you're talking about cars that drive themselves, you know, that's, yes, you need innovation to do that. You need creative thinkers coming up with new, new, new solutions, but you really, really, really extra need that functional safety, that thorough, you know, test, 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 vet, 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 go through all the potential problems, you know, that process driven stuff that, that the traditional automakers do well, that validation, um, that is such an important part of this. And again, you know, we're, we're being asked, right, with, the, with self-driving cars sort of coming eventually, we're going to be asked to trust our cars even more than we already do. And so moving more towards move fast and break stuff is absolutely the wrong approach. We need to, we need to have, you know, really appreciate what it is that the car, car companies have been able to do in terms of making vehicles as safe as they can be. Yeah. And I was scrolling through, I was, um, I, I think there's a inherent flaw in dog mode. There's that center screen that on a sunny day when there's glare or if the windows are tinted, is someone even going to be able to see or read that? But I was scrolling through some articles. I was trying to see, I predicted somebody is going to smash the window of a Tesla because they think they're saving a dog. And um, there's an article here, it says, well, even the fact that dog mode is there is because somebody on Twitter asked. So again, like I admire that Elon listens to customers 
and is responsive. He's sometimes as defensive and as rude as Steve Jobs was when he interacted with customers. But, um, you know, there's, there, you know, you're right. The engineering discipline of not just testing, but you know, what, you know, what people call failure modes affect analysis. You need to brainstorm and be proactive. What are the ways the system could fail? Like you said, especially there's a whole different podcast we could do around, uh, promises and, um, versus reality. Um, are, are there, is this, this vision, um, that, that, that they're just having trouble catching up to, or are they, you know, it's hard to tell if something is a lie or if we just didn't execute. But, um, one, one other thing you, you mentioned about similarities to Trump, I've, I've made that comparison before. It's not a perfect analogy, but Elon Musk certainly plays the fake news card. He labels something he doesn't like as, as fake news or, like you said, maybe it's a product of polarized times where you can't just disagree. You have to label that person as being somehow evil because yeah. they have a different view. And, and that, that bothers me when Trump does it. It bothers me. I, I've seen Elon do similar things. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, a lot of this culture that's built up around Tesla um, is very much an online culture. Um, it, it, the Internet you know, is, is what allows it to exist and what's created it. And it's funny because I, you know, I've been watching sort of it, it emerge uh, and now become this like, you know, multi-headed beast, right? And, and what's fascinating is it came out of um, sort of electric car fan culture, which is like totally, totally different. It was like, you know, yeah, there was a lot of passion, a lot of enthusiasm. And, and some of those like, you know, big oil is the reason that electric cars don't exist. Like some of that was there, but like the, it has really turned into something different. And, um, and it's interesting because I've seen, and I think a lot of it comes to, um, to actually the fact that like the culture is really dominated by people who are investing. And, and so again, like when you see people out there defending Tesla, it's, they're not really, a lot of times they aren't thinking at all about sort of what is going to be best for this company long-term. They're actually thinking what is going to be best for it short-term and not just best for the company, but best for its stock price. And, and they, they're constantly, you know, saying, you know, anybody who criticized Tesla is shorting the stock or working for the shorts or trying to make the stock price go down. They're projecting their own, you know, stake in this onto other people. And, um, you know, I think this is, it's just a, it's another way in which culture, you know, something that can seem like a really positive thing, which is like having this incredibly passionate fan base is something that any automaker would kill for. Nobody has anything close to this. And, and it's this like awesome thing, but like it's gone wrong. It's, it's taken a turn um, to where it's actually, you know, uh, hurt, I think is, is one of the things that hurts the company the most because it creates, it, it, and again, it's hard to say, you know, sort of the extent to which, you know, this culture outside the company is is caused or directly fostered by the company itself versus taking cues from it. That relationship, like anything else, is 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 complex. But um, I think that it that that uh, refusal to listen to constructive criticism, the forcing people into the the enemy box, uh, and the you know anything that might make the stock go down today is bad for the company, even if that means acknowledging something as part of the first step towards solving it long term. Um, that's that's really problematic, and it's um, it's mob rule, and that I think is also you know something that's very much of this moment of um, sort of uh, online communities radicalizing themselves and pushing them, pushing each other to be ever more and more sort of extreme and, and radical, and 
um, you know, you see that in a lot of different other areas too. Well, and, and I pulled up, there's a blog post here on the Tesla blog. This might be what you're referring to called a grain of salt and yes. talks about, maybe you can talk a little bit about this where there is, um, uh, they, they say a blogger who fabricated this issue about um, a high speed accident in Germany that caused Model S to fly 90 or 82 feet through the air. Um, and it says uh, Edward Niedermeyer. So it may get, this is kind of Trumpy to like, punch down and no offense, call you out by name no, yeah. and saying, you know, it's probably wise to take Mr. Niedermeyer's words with at least a small grain of salt because you yeah. inaccurately predicted their death. And then they say, quote, and I'll let you respond to this. We don't know if Mr. Niedermeyer's motivation is to simply set a world record for ax grinding or whether he and his associates have something financial to gain by negatively affecting Tesla's stock price, blah, blah, blah. And then they, they, they pretty much directly say uh, that, they don't directly call you a short seller, but it's important to highlight there are several billion dollars in short sale bets against Tesla, which means there's a strong financial incentive. I mean, they're, they, yeah. they really smeared you there. Yeah, they basically, right. They basically said I made up the story and that I, yeah. So the, the story, this was in 2016. Um, and the story was, yeah. So the, the story was that I, there was a guy who posted on, on this forum saying he did his suspension on this Tesla had broken. And that um, in order to get it repaired under goodwill, which was like free or, or reduced cost repair that Tesla would do of something that wasn't necessarily a warranty repair, um, he had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And he posted the agreement, which he wasn't supposed to do, but he did anyway. And rightly so, because this creates a major regulatory problem because auto safety regulation in the U.S., uh, NHTSA relies on two sources of data, right? You can get it from the manufacturer itself which obviously they have an incentive to not share everything, right? Um, or you can get it from customers who write these, you know, these complaints into NHTSA. Well, right. not only was Tesla making people who had defects uh, or, or, or problems that they were repairing sign a non-disclosure that said, you cannot talk to anybody about any of this. But then also there was this culture in the forums that was like, you know, the owners kind of wanted to know information about what was going wrong, but the investors would sort of come in and be like, no, don't talk about it. this is FUD. You're just making this up. You must, you know, this, this extremely defensive, like there can't be anything wrong with these cars. Everything must be fine. And, and then, um, so I came up, I found multiple other examples of Tesla using or people alleging that Tesla used non-disclosure agreements to basically prevent them from, from talking publicly about this stuff. And so I wrote the story. I, I list all these examples and, Basically, you know, NHTSA came out, I got a comment from NHTSA and they said, you know, this is unacceptable practice. They've, they've, st they have to stop. They cannot keep using these agreements. Um, and because I think Tesla didn't have a real good, ex I mean, they said, oh, we would never do anything to prevent, you know, people from using, you know, from reporting stuff to the regulator. Well, they did, in fact, do that. Yeah. And, you know, they're, but they had, they, I think they felt like they had to do something. And so they said that, I and, and the example with the guy's suspension braking, you know, I mentioned that there have been some other complaints about suspension braking too, but I was very clear, like, I'm not a forensic engineer. I can't tell you. I also haven't examined these things. Like, I can't tell you if a defect exists, but I can tell you that we don't have the information to know that a defect exists in part because Tesla has been silencing people from, from sharing information that might allow you to conclude that a defect exists. Well, they, Tesla basically made it out like I had said that a defect exists um and that a defect didn't exist they, they created a straw man out of my out of my my you know piece and um and then and then said all this stuff about me the the 
the predicting, this is where the, you know, I've been predicting Tesla's, you know, bankruptcy for, for 10 years. It's because in 2008, when I literally the first year I was doing this um, and I was writing freelance for, you know, uh, a blog that someone else would heavily edit my pieces and they put up the headlines. And we had this series of, of uh, a number of series called the Death Watches, which at the time it was mostly the GM Death Watch was the biggest one and the Chrysler and the Ford Death Watch. Um, and, and of course those, you know, came true. GM and Chrysler went, went bankrupt um, for a year or maybe just over a year. He, the, the guy who ran the site at the time wanted to do a Tesla Death Watch um, and it was because, I mean, at that time, Tesla did almost go bankrupt. Elon Musk says it himself in 2008. They, they came extremely close to bankruptcy. They actually, one of the reasons they didn't go bankrupt is because they pulled a, a, a funding secured type of a, a situation, which is <laughs> right. they did funny. People, people forget about that, but, but it's in the book and, and you I go back and look those. at the history. Yeah. And, and that was one of the ways they kept alive is by saying that they got money when they hadn't yet. Um, and uh, so, but I didn't write that at the time. I mean, it was, to say this is a death watch. It was... Um, we were reblogging other people's reporting, uh, and they just happened to be this Death Watch headline. Yeah. And 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 the Tesla one was maybe I don't know a fraction of the GM one, but but this allows them to then create the perception that I've been doing this nonstop. And the irony is, is that in 2014, so this would have been you know years into this, like halfway through this this supposed 10 year jihad, um, I was invited. I had lunch at Tesla headquarters with a with a high ranking Tesla executive. Um, how does that happen if I'm in the middle of a of a ten year death watch? Like it, it just doesn't make any sense. But but people repeat it again and again and again because you know it's a it's a my team versus you team your team thing. Yeah, and and part of you know in the early two thousands there was a website you know um, eftcompany.com. It actually used you know the, yep. the URL is you know but you know you, you you can figure out and and they would do that all the time with tech companies. That was very much a Silicon Valley thing. Yeah. company death uh, pool or death watch around tech companies. And uh, well, Tesla is a Silicon Valley tech company. Um, you know, that, that, that seemed like that's, that's just kind of, the, it was part of that era or, you know, that, or that wasn't just a Tesla thing. Yeah. Well, and if you look at the, you know, having gone back and, and I'm really glad I did take the opportunity with this book to go back through the, through the history of the company. Um, and, and I didn't do it to like do, you know, write the definitive history um, that's not really my, I, you know, I, I don't think it can be done really at this point. I think people need to be able to come out and speak more openly about the company before we get the real definitive history of exactly, you know, um, the, the Robert Caro or whatever. But like the reason I did it was to understand the roots of the problems and the challenges that they're having today. And and um, I'm really glad I did it because what it really shows is it's easy now that Tesla is this $40, 50000000000 billion juggernaut to like look back and say like, oh, this was inevitable you know, this was bound to happen. But really, I mean, their history is just punctuated with, you know, annual or, or every 18 months, maybe every 24 months, just these like near-death experiences. And and the truly desperate and frankly, in a lot of cases, at best unethical things that were done to keep the company alive. Um, this is, you know, and, 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 you know, that's why it's like, I have I have a lot of respect in, in on some level that like they've been able to sort of fight and tear and kick and like bite to to stay alive right their survival instincts of this company are amazing and and Elon Musk's ability when his back is against the wall to make something happen is amazing but like that is just fundamentally not how you run an automaker successfully right the the entire game in car making is planning out the future as much as possible 
And even if you leave some money on the table somewhere in there, you know, if you stick to your plan and you stay consistent, um, you know, you can, you can keep that machine sort of rolling along and, and people don't understand that, you know, literally there's a, a Wikipedia, there's a, 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 an article of just, you know, a list of, of defunct American car companies and just the American ones is over a thousand, right? So this is a business that has chewed up and spit out some like huge egos, some incredible, huge fortunes, you know, larger than life personalities again and again. And, um, you know, as impressive as it is that that Elon Musk has gotten Tesla to survive as long as they have, and certainly get the market cap that they have and everything else, the idea that that their success thus far guarantees you know continued growth in the same level or or even long term survival, it's just it's just not the case. And this is not just my opinion. This is what history very clearly shows. Not just the history of Tesla, but then you compare that with the history of the auto industry and what's worked, yeah. and it just couldn't be more clear. Yeah. So there, I mean, again, you know, I'll say there, there are a lot of things I admire about Elon Musk and, and Tesla, but like you said, um, it's, it's not just DeLorean, uh, Fisker and, and other electric car makers of the 2000s era failed. So it's good that Tesla has survived, but then there's the, the, the flip side. Um, there are ethical and honesty concerns. Um, you know, I, I learned from your book that Elon Musk was not a co-founder. He certainly yeah. paints, he certainly portrays that. He, he, you know, as I learned from your book, he was an investor who became chairman and basically forced his way into um, being CEO. Um, you know, this, this denial of quality problems, the, the first funding secured incident, which made me chuckle because I didn't realize the $420, $420 price share funding secured wasn't the first time he had pulled that. And then there was the story you wrote about of kind of the somewhat questionable way they they forced uh, a profitable quarter so that they could secure DOE loans and there was uh, there, there, there were some things they had announced about those loans when they hadn't even had their uh, application approved right yeah 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 they didn't even have a, a, a yeah an application that filled out the basic requirements for applications approved by at the time that was the second so the, the 420 was the third time he basically said that I could figure uh, I could find that where he said sort of yeah. funding was secured when it wasn't. Um, but yeah, the second time was when they said that they had uh, a DOE loan. The DOE had told them that they would disperse uh, the funding for their loans in four to five months. Uh, it ended up being uh, like a year and a half when the actual dispersal happened. But at the time that he made that announcement, they hadn't even like made an application, a complete application to the program yet. Um, and and these things, but these things matter, right? Like if if you can project you know, this, this, a sense of certainty that things have happened. Again, there, there may be a number of parallels that you could connect this to. I'll, I'll leave that to, to others. But, uh, you know, if you can project, it's, it's sort of this fake it till you make it thing, right? And you can, you can project um, uh, the sense that you are successful or that you are almost successful or that success is right around the corner. Uh, oftentimes, that's enough to make it so, right? To, to get that, that success comes into being. And then I think that that pattern Right. This is this is what Tesla has been doing basically its entire history is is um, you know you know saying there's this great thing right around the corner or we're almost there but we're not quite and then using that to make money that or to to raise money which then you know kind of gets fills in the operational holes for you know what's happened and it's sort of people have likened it to a Ponzi, to a Ponzi scheme and 
you know, I wouldn't say that itself. Obviously, they create products, they do innovate, they do some right. amazing things, but there are certainly their financial, you know, pattern is pretty clear there. And I think that now we're seeing this sort of, this has been reaching a crescendo for a while. And I think now this pattern has reached a point where it's, it's full self-driving, where it's saying, we're going to take these cars and we're going to make them, they're going to drive themselves. They're going to be these, you know, appreciating assets that are going out and earning you $30,000 a year and all this stuff. And like people, people believe it. And, um, I spent a lot of time, I have a, a podcast called the Autonicast. I spent a lot of time talking to people in the, in the self-driving car space. Um, this is, I, I think, you know, and, and again, I've, I've documented all this history and, and a lot of people think that, you know, a lot of these, these specific incidents that we've been discussing are, were fraudulent on the part of Tesla. And I really try to avoid using that term. Um, I think that with this full self-driving thing, I think, and again, I, you know, most frauds, famously, you know, historical examples of frauds are not, people don't set out to commit fraud. Like that does happen, but it's, it's rare, uh, relatively rare. More often people get into something with good intentions and it just sort of gets out of their control and they have to do one thing and then they get away with it. They do something a little bit more aggressive and they get away with it. And that to me, I think that's, and and I don't spell this out in the book because I I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get sued, right? I don't want to say that they're committing fraud, but this uh, self-driving thing is the point at which they become very much like Theranos. I was uh, just going to say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so Theranos had to do this pretty early in their history because they never had anything, right? And I don't say, think well, she intended to commit fraud, but it got out of control. Exactly. And it got out of control very quickly. And with Tesla, um, they've had, you know, they've made legitimately great cars and, and yeah. they've done things that are legitimately like real and add value and, and, um, and, and really distinguish them from Theranos as a company. But I think that, um, again, this, this, this pattern of having to um, project, fake it till you make it, right? That's the term that, that gets used a lot with, with their nose. Right. That, I think, with self-driving, the self-driving part of this, um, I am personally convinced that, that that pattern has sort of reached as far as it can go with this thing. Um, we'll see what happens. I, I think we're, we're, we've got a, a heck of a show lined up for the next couple of years when they, when they have to reach the point where they start saying that, you know, reach the point where they said they would deliver on this stuff um, and, and how they handle that's going to be really interesting. But um, I think that, 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 and, and you already see this, that, that it's, it's one of the things that's making people who did believe in the company really lose faith and, and really Tesla uh, runs on faith as much as anything else. And in some ways faith is their most important asset. And to the extent that this is eroding faith, it's already sort of sowing some of the seeds of, of real, fundamental problems for the company. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of uh, other really interesting stories in the book and I would encourage um, people to go and pre-order it. Um, it's called Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors by Edward Niedermeyer. And Ed, maybe let me ask just one more question because um, you know there, there's stuff in the book um, about this culture clash between Toyota or Numi veterans and Tesla. There's a quote in there of Elon Musk getting mad and, and yelling at someone, we're not building Toyotas, which I think goes back to your point. They were building more like a Bugatti or a Range Rover where people realize it's a premium product and ironically, they're, or it's interesting, they're more willing to accept breakdowns or electrical glitches or, or other problems. But you know, the, you mentioned earlier, there was a story about someone on the Roadster production team, you, you called him Frank. Um, you know, it says his colleagues didn't show much interest in developing 
the TPS culture he had learned in his previous assembly line job. And I, I've had people email me, a couple people have said, I work at Tesla and you don't dare bring up Toyota or Numi. It's yeah. just something you don't mention. So, you know, they, these different stories, I guess my final question for you is considering the, the company, um, you know, is litigious, they've, they've come after you, you know, how do you vet the stories that go into a book like this? How, how do you quality control it? Um, to make sure the stories, um, I, you know, aren't made up, you know, by somebody who has a grudge against the company because they got fired for some reason. Yeah. So um, that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, um, a lot of anecdotes that were in this book um, have ha- have have had to be removed. So so the book goes through a, a rigorous uh, legal review yeah. um, with the publisher's lawyers. Uh, on top of also, um, we have a fact-checking review prior to that with um, with my uh, uh, editors, um, and then also before that even happens, um, I have my own personal vetting process, right? Um, where I sort of decide: is this person credible? Is this does this anecdote seem real? So, I think what's important to understand is that is that you know, unfortunately, and I say this as a storyteller, it's unfortunate that that the best anecdotes. I have have had to hit the you know be left on the cutting room floor because I think anecdotes can be a wonderful way they're engaging they 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 draw you in and they can illustrate these broader patterns but what's important is in is not the anecdote and this is why I was okay leaving them on the cutting floor what's important is not the anecdotes it's the broader patterns and when it comes to the broader patterns there's no shortage of evidence um to support how things are at Tesla now part of this is uh you know one one of the issues with Tesla um, across the board, whether it's their quality or their culture, all these other things, is that it's inconsistent, right? And so, because it's inconsistent, um, it can be great for some people. And I make it very clear in the book: if you're an engineer, uh, especially a design engineer, um, Tesla was like a playground. Uh, it was people yeah. had the best jobs of their careers were at Tesla if they were in those areas. People who are in manufacturing uh, very rarely say that Tesla was the best job of their career. People who are in quality control very rarely say that Tesla was the best job of their career. Um, and so, you know, there, there are inconsistencies within the company. And I think those are what show you um, sort of what the company's priorities are and, and therefore what the culture is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that to me, um, the important part wasn't um, and, and this, you know, I may well be losing, you know, sales or leaving sales on the table by not sort of going for the, the splashy anecdotes as much as possible. Yeah. But that, that wasn't the point of this. The point of this was to understand what are the broader patterns. And, um, and as a result, um, you know, it did, it, the book, I've, I've spoken with lots of people, um, uh, tens of, 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 you know, uh, mostly former uh, uh, Tesla employees. Uh, at, at all different levels, everything from the board and not just employees, from the board level to top level executives, uh, all the way down to to rank and file on the on the assembly line. Um, I've also drawn a lot on the excellent reporting that a number of other people have have done in the space, and I list them in the back of the book. I, it's too long to list them all here, but there's been some mm-hmm. amazing journalism done. Um, and uh, you know, I so for me, because my priority was to illustrate the patterns, that was the point of going through the history of the company was to not document it exhaustively, but to understand where these patterns come from. Um, that to me is, is, is the important part. So I don't, you know, I'm not going to share all the details that I, you know, went into to vet individual sources, because if an individual source said something 
um, that was totally outside of these patterns. I wanted to understand why and, and where that was coming from. But like the patterns themselves were already pretty clear to me before I even started writing the book. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, oh, and by the way, um, also I will have a website. Um, it's not up yet, but uh, it's ludicrousthebook.com. Um, and I will be posting all of my, uh, my sources, um, not my sources, like not the identities of the people who spoke to me, but like everything where I, where I have a citable source, um, which I have in the end notes at the end of the book. Uh, I will also be posting all the documents that I obtained uh, via FOIA request, which there's some stuff in there that has not really been widely reported um, and may be interest, of interest to some people. Um, so that'll all be up there. Um, and, you know, I'm fairly transparent on Twitter, too, if, if you know, <laughs> for better or for worse, if you <laughs> want to ask me a question about, about any particular part of the book, um, you know, I'm there. Um, yeah. And I, I don't, I don't run away from that. Yeah. At Twittermeyer. Yep. Um, so, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, a, like, I, I, I've dealt with enough of this criticism and these attacks <laughs> that I'm not really afraid of it anymore. So, you know, bring it on. So, and, and I asked this question about vetting sources because, you know, when I, I, I put out there on Twitter, what questions would he ask? I mean, some of them, some of the responses were attacks <laughs> instead of questions. Yep. Um, you know, I thought this question, it's a fair question. How do you vet sources? Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask two other questions um, and then let you go because uh, there's, there's the many sides of Twitter. So on the humorous side, um, Chad Kirchner asked, would, would he rather fight one horse-sized Elon or 100 duck-sized Elon? <laughs> Honestly, I'd rather not fight Elon at all. Uh, I would really like it if Elon could see that my criticisms are, are really constructive, that I don't want Tesla to fail, I don't want him to fail, um, that I, you know, these things are things that automakers have had to deal with. They're the things that make the auto business so difficult and they're why so many car companies have gone bankrupt and they're why Tesla itself has already several times very nearly gone bankrupt. Um, so I would prefer not to fight Elon. Uh, however, um, I think I'll take my chances with the horse size Elon, uh, one horse size Elon. I think uh, you get a hundred duck size Elons, they start putting their heads together. I, I, that, that sounds scarier. Yeah, one horse-sized Elon could kick you and, and cause a lot of damage. I don't know if the duck-sized Elons would just be annoying. I don't know if they help, but yeah. <laughs> um, the less flippant question um, instead of a hundred duck-sized Elons. If if you Ed, if you were made the new CEO of Tesla, what would you do in your first one hundred days? Hmm. Yeah, I mean that's a it's a a very challenging question. A because. Um, you know, I don't think I'm actually personally very like well adapted to the auto industry myself. Like, I think some of these things that I criticize, people think like, "Oh, you're so much better. You must think you're so much better than than Elon or than Tesla or whatever." And it's like, no, no, no. These are actually a lot of these things are things I know about myself. I'm not the most organized person. I'm not great at planning. Like, and luckily, I work in a creative field where you don't necessarily have to, um, you know, adopt these lean practices super rigorously. Although I'm sure I could improve my own productivity if I did. Um, so I, I, I've never held myself up as like, I would be better at running this company than anybody. But, um, and, and the other part is that, is that, um, the problems, I think when you boil them down, uh, are, are cultural and therefore nothing, you know, in a hundred days is going to change that. It, it's, we're talking about months, years, um, a decade to turn cultures around. Um, but I think as a result of that, I think, um, 
you know, the, what I would put my priority on is, um, I, I would really just try and um, solidify what Tesla has. I think what Tesla has is a very successful premium car business. Um, I would basically say, you know, uh, and I also, as I read in the book, I mean, I think a lot of this desire to get into the mass market um, comes from the desire to sort of build a legend. Um, and I, I talk about this, you know, the, where that top secret master plan where Elon Musk puts out this, this strategy of, of going mass market is, it was in response to a conflict with the original founder uh, or one of the original founders, Martin Neighborhart, over publicity. And um, Elon wasn't getting enough of the publicity. And so he puts out this thing that's like, you know, we're going to save mankind by making cars for, you know, even the poor folks. Um, I think what Tesla's proven is that they, they can have a real impact on the auto industry, even just selling premium cars. So I would refocus Tesla just to be a small volume premium car maker. I would actually, I would hike prices. I would send them up. Um, and I would do like special editions and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so really try and get them onto a, a profitable, um, uh, basis, not try and have them, uh, uh, chase cost, uh, chase growth at all costs. Um, and I would also really, uh, uh, try and, um, do some things to communicate, um, to the public that, you know, we're not going to attack critics anymore. Um, you know, no company has all the answers. Um, we need to listen to what we're doing wrong uh, in order to fix them. Um, so I think there's a mix of strategic stuff and then also just sort of, you know, setting the tone um, to be a little bit more uh, more humble and just focused on the task, which is, you know, continuing to make, develop and make cars that people really love and get excited about, but also um, delivering them at much, much better quality uh, and and just having a much more consistent uh, uh, service uh, and and sort of customer experience after that, um, I think Tesla has done some amazing things to innovate. But but you know really the what the company needs is to be on a on a really solid footing, and that's not sexy. Um, it's not it's not exciting, and it's not going to be the kind of thing that has them in the news, you know, every every day and every week like it has been. But as we've also seen, I think that's something that's turned from being a real positive thing to being more of a, of a negative thing. So honestly, I would try and make Tesla more like a regular car company. And I know there's fans who don't want to hear that. Uh, I think I would be a terrible at leaving the company as a result and that's fine. I'm, it's never going to happen, but, um, but I think the company really needs to consolidate its, its success. And if it keeps doing what it's been doing, uh, it will never, it will never do that. Well, thank you, Ed. And I appreciate you um, giving so much of your time to talk about uh, a fascinating company, an important company. There are uh, a lot of really uh, interesting stories in the book, and um, I'm looking forward to reading. I've read about the you know, first hundred pages, I think I said, and looking forward to reading the rest. Um, the book is available now for pre-order on Amazon, and I'm sure the other Major bookstores. Uh, the book is Ludicrous: The Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. Um, it is due for release on August twentieth. It's currently the number one new release in the automobile industry section. So, congratulations for that, Ed. And thank you, uh, thank you again. Thank you again for um, sharing the book with me and uh, being a guest here on the podcast. No, thank you. It's it's been uh, really great. And um, like I said, if if I hope that if, if the book accomplishes anything, that it gives people a better understanding of the kinds of things um, that you guys talk about, um, uh, you, you specifically, but, but the Lean Institute. Um, I think these are really important things that uh, you know, too often get left behind in sort of the, the love of, of innovation. Um, and uh, 
yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I really respect what, what you guys do and I'm really pleased to have uh, been able to be on the show. Well, thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com. 